Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Healthy Debates, part of a series of podcasts brought to you by the UK's best-selling women's wellbeing magazine, Healthy. I'm your host and editorial director, Ellie Hughes. Today we're looking at Christmas and specifically how to Christmas-proof your relationship. We all know the stresses around Christmas can lead to more arguments with your partner than usual. So how can we try to avoid that this year? If things do regrettably get to a point where you want to divorce, how can this be done with kindness? And if you're alone this Christmas after divorce, how can you make this a positive experience? Here today to help us find some answers is our guest, the divorce coach, Sarah Davison. Sarah is the author of The Split, Break Up to Breakthrough in 30 Days or Less and is an award-winning coach whose business is based on her own experiences of relationship breakdown. If you like the sound of all of that, remember you can pick up the latest copy of Healthy magazine in your local Holland & Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Or head over to healthy-magazine.co.uk to get your online fix. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the Healthy Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Just to kick off then, there's an idea that the first Monday back to work in January is Divorce Day. That's what the papers like to call it. The media like to go on about this Divorce Day. The idea being we've all had loads of arguments with our partners over the Christmas holidays. We can't wait to get back and immediately divorce them on this first day back at work. Is there any truth behind that? What, what's really going on with this idea about Divorce Day? Yes, it is true, unfortunately. It seems to be a trend that when we spend quality time with our partners, um, it can lead to more divorce inquiries. So what happens on Divorce Day or D-Day, as it's referred to as well in the media, um, people are getting in touch with family law firms just to inquire about well, what happens if I file for divorce? What does it look like? Because I'm not happy. Now, there's two peak times. January is the biggest peak of the year. And then, interestingly enough, September is the other peak time, which is straight after the summer holidays. So again, when you're spending quality time with your ex, now, you don't need to worry about it if you've got a good relationship, obviously. But if you do think there's cracks in the relationship, then obviously spending quality time is going to put more of a focus on that. And things that maybe have been stacking over a period of time can come to a bit of a crescendo during those times where you're not distracted by the daily routine. You know, you're not going off to work. You're not taking the kids to school. You know, you're really just there face to face talking and spending time with each other. Okay. So it's, say it's December 27th. I've had a really stressful, horrible time on Christmas Day and Boxing Day, nonstop argument with my partner. You know, how can I avoid waking up and thinking, I don't want to go through that again. I never want to have Christmas like that again. What can I do better, really, to improve things? Well, it's it's an interesting one because everybody's different. Um, if you know that there are cracks in your relationship and that Christmas is inevitably going to put strain on that, then it's a good idea just to have a think beforehand. You know, in the moment, it's difficult to resolve the arguments. You know, it might be that every year when the in-laws come, there's the same argument that plays out year after year. So it's about really thinking about what are the trigger points for you and your partner and how do they get set off and thinking about it in advance. For example, if it's your financial situation and budget for Christmas can often be a tricky one, or if it is the in-laws coming, 
you know, try and sit down with your partner and have a conversation, not on December the 24th, but maybe September, October, November and start planning it saying, okay, well, you know, I know this is difficult. How do we work around it? You know, is your mom coming to stay for, for three weeks or can, maybe we can get it to two days? And, and if she does do what she's done in the past or I get upset by something, you know, will you have my back? And just having a plan around it so that you've talked about it and you've explored how it can work a bit better. Because if you work together as a team and you're both committed to making it work, then you've got a better chance of getting to the 27th intact and not feeling so bad. Okay. So that all sounds great in theory. Lovely plan. What if your husband or your, your partner just doesn't see it that way? So your feeling is, I just can't do three weeks with the mother-in-law. Please, can we limit it to two days? And their point of view is, she's my mum. She just wants to come. Just put up with it, for goodness sakes. What are some really good tactics to just kind of get into the, the detail of that conversation with your partner? Well, I think it's really interesting. If you are in a relationship where your partner has absolutely no regard for how you're feeling, I think that is a warning sign, to be honest. Um, we all have to look at our boundaries and by boundaries, I mean, what is acceptable behavior in a relationship? What will you tolerate? Now, if you're, you know, if maybe in the past you've gone along with it because you don't want to upset, maybe you're, you, you don't like conflict, maybe you will avoid it. So maybe you'll go through things and agree to things that ultimately backfire and cause problems. So I think it's about sitting down and saying, I understand all the reasons that you're giving me. And I totally, you know, want you to have that time with your mother. Do you understand that when these things happen, it makes me feel like this? Because quite often people don't see the world the way we do. So they might just think you're being difficult or we're tricking or being tricky. So if you could actually explain, you know, when your mum says this or when this happens, I feel upset or I feel maybe you don't have my back, then you have an opportunity then for them to say, ah, okay. Quite often it can be a light bulb moment, just having those really deeper conversations, like you say, about, well, how exactly does it make me feel without the blame? Just saying it makes me feel rejected or unloved or like you don't care about me as much as your mum. And so then if you know it, the, the relationship is a healthy one, you would hope that your partner would say, oh, I didn't realise that. How can I support you? And then you can come up with a way of, well, maybe when your mum does this, we can put on a happy music track or you can just have my back or come over and give me a cuddle and say, oh, don't worry we'll get through this, just deep breath. Um, however, if they're saying, forget it, I, she's coming, forget you, I think that really does raise a huge red flag about the state of your relationship and you know how, how your partner works with you because you know, in most relationships, that is not acceptable behaviour. Having said that, I think part of being an adult, I suppose, is accepting that a lot of Christmas is about compromise. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's no longer your special day to be indulged and given presents as, as it was when you were a child. How do you know if you're making a compromise that's an okay compromise or, as you say, a compromise that actually might be damaging your self-esteem and the relationship in the long run? How do you get that balance right? So I think that's really tricky. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a big difference between compromises, which are essential in any relationship that's healthy. So, you know, if your mum wants to come over and stay or maybe, you know, you prefer, you want roast turkey, they want nut roast or whatever. It's about compromise. Those things are might put you out a bit, but they don't affect your self-confidence, your self-esteem. But the thing to watch out for is when those compromises become sacrifices. And sacrifices are where you walk away feeling hurt 
or that you're doing something you really don't feel comfortable with or your gut instinct is screaming, this isn't right. Um, maybe it makes you cry. You know, anything that you take as offensive or morally uncomfortable, that would be a sacrifice. So where you're actually ending up feeling bad or you're having to bite your tongue for long periods of time. I mean, obviously, we'll have to bite our tongue sometimes in different situations. But I think compromises are healthy. Sacrifices are where it can cause fundamental damage to the relationship. And what about the, you raised it earlier, the kind of issue of financial disagreements. It's a classic kind of one in relationships that people need to be obviously aligned in terms of financial priorities to have a good, healthy relationship. How does that exhibit over Christmas and what are the differences people often have with their financial kind of priorities when it comes to Christmas time? Well, this is really interesting. I had a client uh, last year who had had a big argument around Christmas because they had followed my advice to sit down and have a talk about the budget. And they talked about how much they were going to spend on Christmas presents for each other. And they'd agreed to spend, it was about 30 to 40 pounds was the budget they'd agreed for each other. However, she, my client, was really upset when he actually spent £35 on a present for her. And that had caused a big argument. And her argument to him was, yes, I said that, but I expected you would spend more. So I think it's about being really <laughs> honest with each other about what is it that you want. You know, if you want them to spend a bit more, then maybe find a way for that you to communicate that because you can't set the rules and then be upset with your partner if they break them. But also it, it works both ways. You know, if money is tight, then you do need to carefully think about, you know, where you're going to get the food from and those extras that we all sort of get at Christmas that make, you know, make it really special. How do you fit those in and what compromises are you going to make this year? Um, yeah, and work on that together and then agree to stick to it and also agree not to be angry uh, if the, your partner is sticking to it as regards <laughs> <Yeah>. your present. <laughs> yeah, or perhaps maybe, you know, there's a little bit of leeway to slightly overspend as well, which is my my weakness that will, we will agree a budget and then I'll... Yes. Like, oh, but I just saw that lovely present well, for my that, daughter. I just had to add that one in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a challenge. And I think it's about agreeing up front and, and discussing that. You know, is there any leeway if I see this or I see that? And maybe having a, a little extra fund pot somewhere that is, you know, agreed that if it does go over, we can spend that, but that is it. I just think that if you make your own decisions outside of what you've agreed with your partner, that is, you know, lying, laying it open to, to arguments and disagreements, which isn't good at yeah, Christmas. Yeah. I'm wondering about social media and if you've seen more divorces come through as a result of social media and the kind of pressure it puts on all of us to be perfect, particularly at Christmas time when we're already feeling pretty stressed about achieving the perfect Christmas. It just ramps it up. Do you see a kind of increase in pressure on people because of social media? I think social media puts extra pressure on people every single day. Um, I think if you're having a tough time at Christmas and you can see everybody else having a great time, yeah, that can put pressure on. I think you think, well, I should be having a good time. But it's really important to remember that, as you know, social media is best put forward every time. You know, no one is posting the pictures behind the scenes of the arguments. Well, not many. Some are, but not many. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's it's important to to, to keep a 
realistic view of it and see that it really is best put forward and it's the best case scenario that everyone's sharing. Everyone has arguments. Even the healthy relationships have arguments at Christmas. I mean, you know, it is a stressful time for everyone. Um, so, you know, I think you have to take that with a bit of a pinch of salt. But social media can definitely pour, pour fuel on the flames that, and make it worse if you're feeling bad and you're looking at happy pictures for sure. Would you recommend anything as prescriptive as taking some time off, a social media, taking a break from both kind of uploading stuff yourself and also looking at other people's posts? Yeah, I think it's up to each individual. If you feel that your emotions are battered by social media, then you've got to take responsibility for that. And a lot of the work I do with my clients is how do you take control back over your emotions? And if you find that you feel low or it affects your mood in, in any negative way because you're connecting too much on social media, then stop or just stop following those certain people. I mean, it might just be a couple of people that are make you feel uncomfortable. So just stop them. But I think it's important to be consciously aware of the things that dial down your emotions and make you feel unhappy and then be able to consciously put a plan in to go, actually, I'm not going to do any more of that because it's almost like I'm banging my head against a brick wall and hurting myself. So it's about you making those decisions for yourself, but consciously rather than just feeling bad by your by your actions. I love that uh, comment you just said about taking control of your own emotions. Mm. Can you explain that a bit more to me? Yes, absolutely. I was with my clients and I, I did one of my breakup recovery retreats last weekend. And one of the big focuses is how to take control of those negative emotions and also the positive ones. And I always say to my clients, just imagine you've got a dial in front of you and it goes from 10, which is maximum intensity, to zero, which is none at all. And say you've got, uh, like, for example, at the weekend, I had a, a, a man who was stuck in anger, who's absolutely raging at his ex-wife. Um, and anger is quite a paralyzing emotion. So what we worked on over the weekend was giving him techniques, coping strategies to dial down from, even from a 10 to an 8, you can make quite quick shift with various different techniques about how you, yeah, body language or the words you were saying, because he kept saying, I'm raging, I'm raging. And that was a stuck pattern in his head. So, so we changed that for something a lot more mellow that he picked the words for. So even if you can shift it from a 10 to an 8, the impact of just a small shift can mean the difference between, you know, being paralyzed by anger, not being able to work or think about anything else to being able to get to work or parent the kids. And then once you've moved it to eight, it's easier to then start dialing it down to four or three, you know, as you go through. But it's about being in charge of, of, of your life, really. It's about being consciously aware and identifying specifically what emotions are controlling you, whether it's anger or sadness or jealousy. And then recognizing what that means to you, because what it means to you will be different to a friend or your ex or somebody else. So what does that emotion mean to you? How does it impact your life? And how do you then take control of that by firstly recognizing it consciously so that when it happens, you go, ah, I'm doing anger or I'm doing sadness and then changing your behavior around it. So if you're going to take something away or dial it down, we need to replace it with something else. So think creating a compelling future or coming up with some things that will, five star jumps will change your body language in a heartbeat, whether you like it or not, or you feel like doing it or not, it will change how you feel and will help you dial down in that moment. But then other things like supporting yourself with maybe putting photos around your home if you're feeling sad of happy times with your friends and the people that you really care about. And just putting in small little 
changes that will stack up and create a toolkit of empowering techniques and strategies that will help you to dial down but constantly remind yourself. So whilst you're dialing down the anger, you want to be putting in other things that make you feel good about yourself. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of things you can do, but it's about being consciously aware so you make those decisions rather than just being battered by a text or a call or something that comes in from somebody else. Mm. I'm wondering if your clients come to you and they already know they need to take control of their emotions or actually if there's quite a lot of blaming their partner for causing those emotions in the first place? Yeah, great question. A lot of blame. (laughs) Uh, He's done this, she's done this, therefore I feel like this. And well, what can I do about it? Of course I feel like this because of these outside external actions. The challenge with that is whilst it's completely natural and 100% normal to feel like that, you're actually giving your power away to other people. So you're not in charge of your emotions. You're basically saying, well, if he does this or she says this, then I will feel like this. And it's up to it's up to them. So I'm in reaction. And part of my job, I see it as a coach, is to give you the remote control to your brain almost. So I can say, I can show you how to take that control back and say, right, I'm going to dial down this emotion or I'm going to choose how I react. Now, I know that I'm trained and set up and, and I'm in a pattern of reacting like, you've said this, therefore I'm going to be hurt and I'm going to cry or I'm going to have to shut myself down for a while and I won't be able to work. But actually, what happens if I chose to react in a different way? And a great antidote to someone being unkind is actually just to feel sorry for them. Say, oh, you know what? I feel really sorry for you. Now, you might not be able to go there straight away. But actually, pity is a great antidote to anger or someone being unkind to you. Because if you can think, gosh, you've got to be unhappy. Happy people are not unkind. So there's got to be something going on in your life that you want to cause me this kind of pain. So I actually feel quite sorry for you. Can you see how that dials down a little bit of that intensity so that you can cope better? And it's all about finding coping strategies just to keep you going and cope better. Okay, so a practical example of a coping strategy then. It's Christmas Day, the time is going, the turkey needs to come out the oven, the potatoes aren't crispy enough, mm-hmm. the mother-in-law wants another sherry, the kids want to unwrap their presents. I just want to shout at <laughs> everyone, particularly my husband who's not being supportive. Yeah. What are some coping strategies that you know I can have with my partner to kind of work through that or preempt that ever happening in the first place yeah I mean it's a great one I mean I think it you know with every relationship is different you know I've got clients who when the tensions get high and you everyone is expecting it to go a certain way aren't they especially if you you know you're a family been together for a while you know what triggers people and how they react you know if you know that dad's gonna storm off or gonna say something unkind then maybe you just do the unexpected and that could be uh, pulling a ridiculous face or putting on a loud tune that just distracts everybody and just takes away that intensity. It could be walking around going, oh, can you smell popcorn? <laughs> yeah. Just something completely yeah. random. Or it could be when they're getting really angry and you can see it's all about to kick off. I love you. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. Happy Christmas. You know, I mean, just doing things to change the mood in that instant. But I'm yeah, I'm warning you, it's going to be the last thing you feel like doing. <laughs> yeah. But it, that's where you build your resilience. You know, when you go to the gym, it's not the first weight that you lift that builds the muscle. It's the one where you're like, oh, my arm is killing me and I don't want to do this. That's when the progress is made. So sometimes the techniques are, are challenging to implement, but actually when you do, the impact is huge. 
No, I love that idea. It's, I can, I'm going to remember that one because that moment will happen to yeah. me on Christmas Day. Do you think that kind of long-established couples, like you said, you've been together 20 years, have very different kind of pressures on them to newer couples or is it all kind of the same stuff that we're trying to work through when yeah. it comes to Christmas Day? Yeah. It's a good question. I think um, if you've been in a relationship for a long time, you know the the, the pitfalls. So in some ways, you've almost got a roadmap of this is where it goes wrong. And then you can identify, actually, when it gets to this point, which we know it's going to, what am I going to do at that point? So you kind of have a bit more control because you know what to to expect. Um, the challenge with that is that you're stuck in a rut and that you just think you know, maybe it's not worth it or you can't change it. But you can. You've just got to be more creative, I think. you just got to dig deeper. With new relationships, um, again, you know, expect the unexpected. You don't really know what's going to happen, especially when new families come together, two sets of in-laws or friends that maybe haven't known each other for very long. You don't maybe know what someone's like if they've had a few drinks to that extent and then you've got to spend the night and wake up the next day. So I think you've just got to have a bit of a think about how you control your emotions. And if someone is upsetting you, you can do it in a more general way rather than specifically that you know a certain person is going to act in a certain way. So earlier on you talked about um, healthy arguments and even kind of couples in a healthy relationship will still argue. So what's different about the way they argue that makes it healthy compared to a couple that may be kind of heading down the road to divorce without being able to put the brakes on? Yeah, conflict resolution is a really important thing to work out when you're in a partnership with somebody. So what I mean by that is how do you, so how does conflict usually get triggered? So is it one party or the other, or is it a certain topic? And then how do you resolve conflict? Now, I had a client recently um, called Mark and his family background, he's Greek. So his parents were very loving, very loving relationship. But when he, when he watched them argue, they would stay in the room and fight it out. You know, they would literally, it would be, it would, that was actually considered the most loving and respectful way to resolve an argument. Never leave the room, stay there, eyeball to eyeball and argue it out until it's resolved. So that could get quite heated, quite fiery, but that, you know, but it would always work itself out. Now Mark ended up marrying a lady called Sarah, who's super sweet grew up in a very calm, quiet family with her mum and dad, very loving relationship as well. And their way of dealing with conflict was when it would arise, they would both leave the room, think it through, sometimes even, God forbid, sleep on it, and then come back the next day to talk it through. That was their way of being loving and respectful. So what do you think happens when you put Mark and Sarah in a room with a conflict? <laughs> like Sarah's pegging it out the door and Mark's thinking, well, she doesn't love me. She doesn't feel respected. Come back here. And Sarah's thinking, hang on, Mark, you don't love me. You're not respectful of me. You need to let me go so that we can work this out. So it's really understanding each other's way of resolving conflict. If you can talk about it, even if you don't have the same ways of resolving conflict, if you can talk about it and understand that you still love each other and you're still being respectful because Mark and Sarah both are unloved and unrespected in that relationship, even though they were both doing what they felt was the most loving, most respectful thing to do. So I think looking at how you resolve conflict and if it's the same way that your partner does, it's going to be a lot easier. If you're having an argument anyway and then put on top of that a different method of resolving it, I think that's where the resentment and the communication starts to fall apart. So that's where it becomes dangerous. So at what point then, we all argue with our partners, it's just 
life. At what point do you, you know, is there a kind of common ground with couples who just think, actually, that's it now, it's enough, we've reached the point where we need to talk about divorce? Or, you know, actually, that's okay, we can live with these arguments, we need to work through them. How do you know, in a way, when it's time, when enough is enough? Well, that's a really interesting point, because I think it's different for everybody. And I think it's rare, in my experience, to see each partner come to that decision at the same time. So there's different ways relationships end. Either it's you know betrayal or something huge happens, which is traumatic for one party, mainly more than the other. Um, or maybe it just fizzles out over a long period of time. You know, couples that have been together for a long time, you change a lot. You know, maybe the kids have left and now you're sat across the breakfast table thinking, hmm, I don't really remember this. And maybe you've got less in common. So I think, you know, you get what Gwyneth Paltrow brought to us, conscious uncoupling, which is fantastic if you can do it and be amicable and walk away. But a lot of the time and a lot of the clients that I see are what I've termed aggressively severing which is really the other end of the spectrum. Um, so I think it's important to make sure when you're making that decision that you're leaving with no regrets. That's very important that you actually do whatever you can to try and make the relationship work. You know, it takes a long time to get married, you know, planning everything from, you know, who's coming to the wedding and where you're going to live and the canopy and everything. But people quite often rush into divorce because they, they, they haven't thought it through. And then they live with regrets or unresolved issues with their ex, the what ifs. And that's not good for being able to let go and move on and then, you know, having a future where you're feeling happy. So in order to limit that, that sort of baggage that you drag around with you, it's important to work and do your best if it, if it works for you to stay in that relationship and work it out. So, you know, looking at your communication styles, looking at your different languages of love, you know, how do you show your love? How does your partner show love? Making sure you're resolving conflict in the, in the right ways. Um, but if it isn't working and it isn't healthy and you're not happy, then, you know, you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. Staying in a toxic or unhappy relationship is not worth it. You know, if you've done your best, you've resolved it to the point where you can't compromise or sacrifice anymore. Maybe it is the best thing to do then to, to look forward. Um, and if you can part amicably, fantastic. If you can't, well, you know, there's things you can do to limit that negativity moving forward. So how, how can you increase your chances of a good divorce and, and parting amicably? Well, I think the best way to do it is to sit down and actually have a communication about, okay, if we're splitting up, how do we want this to look moving forward? What are the boundaries? What are the rules, if you like? So, for example, I see all the time in my clinic that partners let themselves in with a key and come into the house because the kids are there and, well, they used to live there. They'll go to the fridge. They'll make themselves a cup of tea. And if that boundary hasn't been set that actually now this is where I live and you've got your place, I wouldn't do that in your place. So, you know, please don't do it here. It can cause tensions. So even down to those small things that can actually make have a big emotional impact on people, I think it's important to sit down and say, right, what does this look like? And just be aware that when you come to talk about splitting the finances, even the most amicable people get um, well, it can it can make it more difficult and make can make it heated talking about who's going to get the piano or where the cat's going to live. You know, those things will make things difficult. So if you can agree up front that you're going to respect each other, you're going to have be kind as you can to each other, even when it gets difficult, then that will help. And even if you can have a way to say, 
I know it's going to get heated at times. Can we communicate in this way? Then I think that's the best way to be able to protect yourselves from that inevitable conflict that will come during those challenging times. And do you find in your experience that people perhaps underestimate how upsetting divorce might be? I know it's compared to bereavement as it is that difficult to get through. Do you think, you said earlier, people actually can rush into it a bit. Do you think people don't appreciate how difficult it's going to be? Yeah, I was fascinated to find out that divorce is known as the second most traumatic life experience we go through after death of a loved one, as you say. And that it follows a very similar pattern to the grief cycle that people go through. So it is very traumatic. I think when you go through death of a loved one, you you have your friends and family around you and it's a little bit more accepted and, the, and they will be there to support you. When it's a breakup or a divorce, people kind of expect you to move on and it can be hard um, to, to cope. So yeah, I think it definitely can be very challenging and I think people do underestimate it. Also, we live in a celebrity culture now where you see celebrities getting married then they're divorced and then literally a month later they're out with some other hot person and they seem really happy it makes it look really easy to let go and move on. But the actual reality behind the scenes without the gloss and the and the media, it's, a, it's very different. So I know that some celebrities have talked out about it, um, about their breakups and actually the reality of it. And I think that makes a big difference because I think people think that because other people are doing it and who are high profile, it's not going to have such an impact. And we also live in a culture which is very disposable. You know, if you don't like something, you change it. But with relationships, it goes a lot deeper than that because there's a lot more emotions tied into it. So it's worth taking your time and not rushing into big decisions like that. And I've read about the kind of five stages, really, Mm. that people go through that are very much like the stages of getting over a bereavement. Can you talk about that a little bit, the kind of anger and denial? Yes. Well, denial is the first uh, stage. And it's interesting because a lot of people say, well, why do people deny it's happening? So, for example, I had a client who discovered an Ann Summers receipt in her husband's jacket pocket. And she was more of an M&S kind of girl, should we say. And so she was surprised and she thought, well, that's unusual. But it was her birthday coming up. So she thought, maybe he's got it for my birthday present. Anyway, her birthday came and went and she didn't get it. But she still didn't tell anybody and she unrealistically thought, well, it's Christmas three months away. Maybe that, or maybe I'll get it for Christmas. And she didn't. But during this period of about four or five months, she didn't mention it to anyone because she was in denial. And what we do is we stuff it down until we're actually ready to cope with it. Because actually just looking at that opens the box and can be very, very traumatic. So it is quite common for people just to stuff it down and carry on because the more you talk about it, the more real it almost becomes. The second stage is anger, and that's where the gloves are off. You're really feeling that high emotional state, and you're resentful that somebody is breaking up the relationship, maybe a family, um, tensions run high, arguments. Some people don't really get to that high anger. Some people feel it more as anxiety and stress. So, But you will go through that stage where you're frustrated and angry. And then bargaining phase, which is the third one, which I think is is fascinating because it it's amazes me and myself included what we will accept, what we will tolerate and put up with in a relationship just to keep the status quo. So, for example, it might be that you'll suddenly try and get fit 
or you'll start wearing your smart clothes at home or putting your makeup on if you're a woman or um, doing, you know, having dinner ready at a certain time, anything just to keep the status quo, ignoring maybe infidelity, saying, okay, well, we can get through it, even when it does compromise your morals or violate your, your morals um, and you're making big sacrifices. But as humans, we would rather stay with the terrible situation we know than think, well, actually, I don't know what the change would look like if they went. So I'll tolerate this pain because I know I can just about survive it. And I don't know what's the other side of this relationship. So I'll just cling on for dear life. Almost in some ways, that gets you to a point of I can sustain this or I can't, you know, and if you can't, it will lead to the fourth stage, which is depression. Um, and again, I have clients that go to GPs and come to me and say, well, I'm depressed. Um, and they are going through you know, a real intense sadness and difficult time. And everybody reacts in different ways, depending on your emotional makeup and your, your mental health. Um, but the interesting thing is, you have to go through depression to come out the other side. So it is a natural part of the healing process. You have to grieve the end of your relationship in order to let it go. So it doesn't mean that you're going to be depressed forever, which is what a lot of people think. It is part of the grieving cycle to come up into the final part, which is acceptance, which is where you maybe take off those rose-tinted glasses and say, actually, I can see the relationship wasn't as great as I've been thinking it has, it, it maybe was. And also you're ready to move forward. You're like, I know we're not going to go back. I've accepted it. But a lot of people get stuck in acceptance because they can't see through that. They don't know. They haven't painted their future bright enough yet. So a lot of the work I do with people is actually what's next? Let's look at the options. Let's paint that picture brighter. So it's not just a black hole you're, you're stepping into. What can you do now you've never done before? Write your breakup bucket list of things you could never have done with your ex, whether it's wearing bright pink nail varnish, wearing leather trousers, going to a certain country or hanging out with friends you'd never done before. You know, I've got a male client who's training to climb Everest. His wife was I think quite understandably terrified about him doing that. But now the kids are older, she's off with somebody else. That's what he really wants to do. So I think it's about taking your control back and redesigning your future just the way you want it at that stage. So on that note, to bring it back to Christmas, how, if you are looking at the prospect of your first Christmas alone, mm. post-divorce, how can you paint that brighter? Yeah, great question. I mean, Christmas is your first Christmas on your own, whether you've got kids or not. It's about setting it up to win. You know, don't think, oh, well, it's going to be terrible because I'm on my own. There might be a part of you that does believe that. So how do you take your control back over that? And how do you make it as good as it could be? So I know for, for clients of mine, sometimes, you know, when they have got a family and they have been stuck in tradition, I mean, in Britain especially, we do get stuck in tradition, don't we? We do things a certain way and we open presents, then we do this. Change it up. Maybe you want to go out for Christmas lunch. You know, if you don't have the kids, you can go out and go to a restaurant that they would never sit still in and have a great time. Spend time with other single people. You know, maybe you could have a few more drinks than you would normally. Maybe you could travel, do it in the sunshine. You know, do something different that you would be excited to to do for you. You know, think about what is it for you that you'd like to have on that Christmas day and set the game up to win. It's very easy to feel sorry for yourself and that's that's normal. You know, we're human beings. We're going to feel that pain. But, you know, we have to take charge if we're going to get through it and speed it up by saying, okay, let's let's set the game up to win. Let's put some things in there that I'm going to look forward to on Christmas Day that I couldn't have done if I was with my ex, that they wouldn't have enjoyed or it wasn't just, you know, possible. 
So it's all about thinking, planning ahead and having something to look forward to. And what about if you have got children? What are some really good ground rules for sharing kind of care of them over the Christmas period with an ex? Yeah, I think this causes issues for a lot of people because Christmas is, you know, if you, especially if you've got young children, Christmas is a very special time of year. So it's about being fair to each other and working out a system that works. You know, if you live close and you're amicable, you maybe could do a Christmas morning and a Christmas afternoon so you both see them. But in some relationships, that's just not going to work. So maybe you have them one Christmas and then your ex will have them the next Christmas. But don't worry if that is the case because, I mean, in my situation, I set up Christmas sometimes at a different time of year and I've got lots of clients that do it. So it's about pre-framing it with the kids and letting them know that Father Christmas comes twice if mummy and daddy aren't together and you just have to let him know and he will come out to those children who have two homes. So, you know, you can do it a week before Christmas. You can have Boxing Day, uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day a weekend before or a weekend after. So you still get those magic moments with kids. And to be honest, they love it because they get two sets of presents. They get two sets of Christmas lunches. So, you know, and your family can come down and share it with you. And then the kids can have the same experience with your ex. That's great. That's really positive advice. Is there anything else you would like to kind of suggest to people looking at Christmas on their own? Yeah, I think it's about surrounding yourself with people that make you feel good about yourself is really important. I mean, Christmas is a time for family and friends. And traditionally, if people are spending time with their families, Mm -hmm. I know it can feel difficult because maybe you're not doing what you've always done or you're not with your family as you would traditionally look at it. So it's important to make sure that you have something to look forward to. You set it up to win and you surround yourself with good people who make you feel happy and positive Um, some friends maybe are emotionally involved in your breakup maybe some particular family members and being around them with all the best will in the world sometimes can make you feel a little bit unhappy so choose the people carefully you want to spend your time with plan it out so that you've got plenty of sparkle coming up for Christmas yeah and you set the rules of the game so that you feel happy and you have a great day yeah I wonder if so earlier on you were talking about the difference between divorce and bereavement and actually they affect us emotionally in quite a similar way but we don't get the same level of support because we're expected to get over divorce much more quickly. On that note I wondered if it might be quite a little bit harder to get the support you might need over Christmas and you might feel you're letting people down in a way that because you've not been able to make it work with your ex. Yes I think a lot of people do feel guilt if they haven't made it work especially if you've got kids. So the thing is, Christmas isn't time for guilt. Christmas is a time for, you know, it's only a day. The 25th is a day. And if you count Boxing Day and Christmas Eve, it's three days. So what can you do? You know, we can all slip into feeling negative. We can all slip into thinking, oh, this is tough. Um, But ultimately, if you can show people and be a great role model, especially if you've got kids, that, you know, sometimes life doesn't work out the way we plan it or the way we want it to. We don't all get the fairy tale ending that we dreamed of. But that doesn't mean there isn't something even better out there. There doesn't mean that life, you can't be even happier. You can. And if you can show, especially your children, that sometimes the wheels fall off. Maybe you're not going to get that job. Someone's going to let you down. Maybe you won't get the girlfriend or the boyfriend you wanted. But actually, that's okay, especially with mental health at the moment, the way it is for children. I think it's, it's a real positive lesson that you can pass on to your children going through a breakup at, at this time of year to show them that, yes, tough things happen, but 
what did mum or dad do when it happened to them? Well, yes, they were sad. Yeah, we acknowledge those sad emotions. But they dusted themselves down. They got back up. And look, now they've gone on. They've created an amazing Christmas. They're having fun. It is possible. So then your child, when they get to a certain age where things aren't going the right way, they don't fall apart and think, gosh, this, there's nothing left for me in life. They actually go, well... I know I can do something about it because I've seen my mum or my dad do it. And that is an amazing gift to give to your child. So actually, if you can't do it for you, then do it for your friends and family and especially your kids. Thank you, Sarah. I love that idea that Christmas is not the time for guilt. And you may not get the fairy tale ending, but you'll get a different one that might well be even better. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. I've had a really good chat. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks for having me. If anyone wants to find out more about Sarah or get some more information from her, do go over to her website, which is saradavison.com. And obviously check out our show notes as well. And remember, you can pick up the latest copy of Healthy Magazine in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.